This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. You're listening to John Fame on 774 ABC Melbourne and on digital. Steve from Point Lonsdale's on the line. Good morning, Steve. Morning, John. What can we do for you? On a cold winter's morning in 2005, top-rating radio host John Fane took a call from a listener for which he was completely unprepared. I can't see any Christian compassion. I'm dying an awful death. You're what, sorry? I'm dying an awful death of cancer. I have cancer of the esophagus, which means that I can't swallow mum's good as dead now, John. I've uh, probably got less than a fortnight to live at this stage. And for the past few months, I've had no quality of life whatsoever. I'm in pain 24 hours a day. I can't eat. I can't do anything. I'm as weak as a kitten. I can't even hang washing on the line. And I want my life to end, and that's all I ask. And these bastards who call themselves Christians, they won't let me have that death, John. And that's all I want now. I want a pill in the cupboard that I can reach for and take it and, and end this nightmare that I'm living at the moment. As Melbourne listened to Steve Guest's desperate wish to die, one man stepped forward. His name was Dr Rodney Syme, and he is Australia's oldest outlaw. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. A perfect combination of eugenic impulse. The devaluation of We lives. just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of we death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control me. The police are obliged to charge me. What the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter, Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton and you're listening to Better Off Dead. A quiet, leafy street in one of Melbourne's most exclusive suburbs. Not where you expect to find a man who's been openly baiting the law for over a decade. Sure, no, no 80-year-old Rodney Syme believes that patients who are suffering unbearably and who are beyond treatment should be able to ask their doctors for help to die. Even though it's illegal in Australia, for more than 20 years he's been providing that help. According to Canadian anti-euthanasia campaigner Alex Schadenberg, this makes him a threat to society. I think it's a complete injustice that they have not brought Ronnie Syme to justice, and the reason is sort of very simple. These people, by being wild cowboys, uh, they're the worst of the worst. So how did a respectable 80-year-old urologist come to be a law-breaking cowboy, the worst of the worst? It began 40 years ago with his patient, Betty, who was dying of kidney cancer. She had neuropathic pain due to nerves being irritated and compressed. And it's the worst possible pain. Effectively, you need an anaesthetic to relieve it. And so I used to visit her every day and 
see what could be improved. And I could hear her screams as I entered the hospital foyer. She was on the first floor. And it was agonizing. I would come to visit her and I'd sit in my car. I can remember it well for, you know, five minutes trying to summon up the strength to go and see her. I mean, that was bad enough for me. Imagine what it was like for her and her family. Impotent in the face of Betty's pain, Rodney could have chosen to look away, but he chose differently. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I just felt that was the most appalling thing that would happen to anybody, and I thought to myself, if I'd been in that pain, I didn't have the slightest doubt that I would have ended my own life rather than go on like that. And of course, I knew that that was possible for me. I was a doctor, I had access to medication, I had colleagues who I knew could help me if I needed help. And so I thought, what's what's ethical about me being able to end my own suffering, but my patients have to go on? And that really changed my whole life. Three years later, Rodney was confronted by Len, a man with incurable bladder cancer whose treatment was only prolonging his death. And I made the urologist's response of saying, well, we better put you into hospital and make you more comfortable. And he looked at me in the eye and said, isn't there something else we can do? Were you quite clear that's what he was asking? I hadn't the faintest doubt. Couldn't have meant anything else. Unable to ignore his conscience, this time Rodney decided to act. I wrote a prescription for sleeping tablets, the maximum quantity that was allowable, and I said to him, if you go home and take these, you probably won't wake up. And I knew it was the question he was asking because the change in his face was dramatic from somebody who was... Uh, being crushed by his illness, his eyes lit up and a smile of thanks came across his face. That night, Len took the tablets, but they were not enough. The naivety of it was that the medication I was prescribing for him was not adequate to do what he wanted. He did go into a deep sleep. His daughter came and found him. Uh, the police broke into the house and he was brought back into hospital and he, he actually did die essentially without waking up, but it took about a week for that to happen. So it was a very naive, impractical uh, outcome. It was clear to me that it was potentially dangerous for me to have done that. I hadn't thought about it. Anyway, it led me to think more deeply about the whole matter. Rodney started to read widely about a sister dying. He spoke out publicly in support of it. Other patients came to him and he assisted in what limited ways he could. It wasn't until 18 years after his clumsy attempt to help Len that he was fully confronted by the magnitude of being asked to help someone die. Can you tell me, when was the moment when you realised that you were outside the law and at risk of prosecution and knowingly so? I guess this happened with a woman who had uh, multiple sclerosis. She was virtually completely paralysed. She had attempted to end her own life. This was before I met her. Alice was in her 50s. She was frightened to have another attempt, but eventually got in touch with me. And I visited her 
and indicative of my fear at that time, I remember well, I parked my car about 300 metres away from her house so it couldn't be recognised that I was actually visiting her and I crept up the street into her house hoping nobody would see me. We had a long talk and she had no medications that she could take which would reliably end her life. I said to her she should have a chat with her doctor and see what he might be able to do. He was not helpful. I said, you could find another doctor. She said, no, there's no doctor. Come and visit me. Rodney was unsure what to do. Following that, she sent me a letter which said how disappointed she was that I couldn't help her. And was there anybody else I could put her in touch with? It was clear that I had failed her and I thought that's... I can't just leave this woman in this dreadful condition. When I met her, she was lying on a a trolley. Um, She couldn't move any limb. She was catheterised. She was in a very bad state. And again, sort of my conscience kicked in and said, look, this woman is is chastising me for cowardice. (laughs) And it was. I was. I wasn't prepared to stump up and I thought, no, I won't let that happen. I, I had to make a really serious decision as to whether I was going to uh, assist this woman to die. I'd never done it before. Rodney researched medication that would end Alice's life. He then put her into hospital under his care until she died peacefully. Assisting a suicide carries a maximum five-year jail term in Victoria. But to his surprise, Rodney found that the law didn't want to get involved. Because I was publicly saying that I was helping people, I thought, well, maybe the the police will get a search warrant. That never happened. I was interviewed by the police on up to nine occasions in it was sympathetic and apologetic and just going through the motions. So I gradually formed the opinion that really the authorities were just trying to evade this issue. With each new public statement, more and more people approached Rodney for help. They had powerful arguments for needing advice and assistance. I, I found I couldn't deny them uh, the respect of talking to them and in some cases helping them. And that's an interesting point because in many, many cases just talking to them was powerful therapy and many of them didn't need anything more than that. It was 22 years ago that Rodney helped Alice to die. And since then? It would be over 100, I would say, more more than that, more than that. I've got no notches on my belt or anything like that. You do what you have to do. If you've helped roughly 100 people to die, how many people would have requested your help, do you imagine? 
Well, I've counselled well over 1,500 people. Um, not all of those would be wanting to die. I'm curious, how does Rodney decide who to help and who not? In the absence of any guidelines, what criteria does he use to turn someone down? You do get a wide range of, of, of requests, and some of them are clearly based on overreaction to the circumstances that they are in. For example, I can remember a couple of people, cancer, which was eminently treatable, but people's minds just sort of freeze and um, they say, oh, cancer, I can't bear to go through that. I want to end my life. And one of the help they need is to be advised to reconsider their situation and, and undergo treatment. There are people with no physical illness whatsoever but have clearly got um, psychological disturbance and they have tremendous suffering. But I have never assisted anybody in that category simply because I don't have the training to make that sort of decision. I've had people with lost all their money. You know, they're suicidal, in fact. They're not... Uh, they need good psychological counselling. They've got a situation which can recover with the right treatment. So I advise them to see, you know, get psychological help and we'll point them in a, in a, to a good person. But they're not difficult to detect. The people coming to Rodney were in unbearable and untreatable pain. Patients for whom their doctors could or would do no more. The more he helped, the more Rodney learnt that even the offer of help was powerful medicine in itself. I've had patients who've been absolutely distraught about their circumstances. You give them medication, involve them in a careful discussion, give them support, and their whole demeanour changes. You relieve that terrible anxiety and sense of having no control. You give them control and the pain diminishes. My name is Albert Gabriel Leonzini, and uh, my age is 70. And what do I do? Nothing. <laughs> Albert Leonzini lives with his partner, Sandra Morris. Faced with a crushing illness, he's turned to Rodney for help. I do nothing, because since I was diagnosed six months ago, um, <clears throat> I haven't been able to do anything. And, uh, and that's given me an excuse to be a bludger. <laughs> Albert has a disease so ugly that in Australia it has its own nickname, the bastard. It's motor neuron disease and medical science currently has no way to cure it. Well, it's very easy to research, very easy. Because basically it says we don't know where it comes from, we don't know what causes it, there is no cure, so go home and die. So you have to accept it. There's nothing you can do about it. For those that don't know anything about this disease, can you describe on a day-to-day -day basis what it's like to live with? Well, it, it's restrictive because, as I said, I can't drive, I can't walk, and uh, everything's been affected. So my life constitutes of lots of rest in bed, lots of rest, up to 20 hours a day. I get up for breakfast, uh, two hours for that, and I get up for dinner, 
another two to three hours. So nearly 20 hours a day in bed. Mm. So that's where I am. And it hasn't really killed me in the sense that I don't sort of say, oh, what kind of a life is that? I don't say that. You still seem very full of life to me, notwithstanding the routine yeah, sure. that you, you have yeah. to live. What are the joys in your life still? And she's my strength, she's my care, she's everything. Sandra and Albert have been together almost all their adult lives. We didn't get married. No, we chose not to be married. Well, we just never... I didn't want to get married because I was waiting for the right woman. (laughs) That's 45 years he's been waiting. So, Sandra, you are, if I can put this romantically, you're a placeholder. That's right. That's right, absolutely. No, we, we... It was just not important. Albert had always believed in his right to control how he dies. But in Australia, because the law denies him that right... Believing it and knowing what to do are different things. Then Sandra heard about Rodney Syme. And so I rang up and made an appointment. So he came here and he met Albert and me and chatted and um, put us at ease instantly about choices. And from that moment we had, I mean, you can say how you felt, Albert, but I felt the most incredible relief, right? Rod's a great guy. It's a great guy because when, you, when you're told you're going to die, the first thing you think about is the pain involved, right? And Rod made me feel very comfortable because he said, you know, we know what to do. It's not going to be painful at all. You're going to be in charge. It's going to be your decision. So when the time is right, he will supply you with Nimbatal? Yeah. And you will administer that yourself? He's even told me how to do it, which is just follow it. How will you know the time is right? That's a good question. Rod said, uh, I'll know. You know, when you become weaker and weaker, less and less energy, harder breathing, harder swallowing. Breathing and swallowing is, is is the key. Sandra, you're entirely comfortable with this? Uh, no. No, I, I agree with it, hmm. but I'm not comfortable with it, right? On the one hand, I think, well, that's the way it should be because that's what he would want is to be self-determining. He's been self-determining all his life and at the most important decision in his life he's not going to be allowed to decide for himself. That doesn't make any sense, right? On the other hand, you know, as his partner to know that he could decide that and then I'd lose him. It's very scary. Mm. Will, when the time comes, Albert, will you share it with Sandra or will you do it quietly or you haven't discussed it? No, no, no. Sandra will be in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. She'll be in the middle of everything. That's the deal. Mm. There are those who believe that assisted suicide is not an act of bravery. It's an act of cowardice, that you are not valuing life as it was given to us. How do you feel about that? Well, my answer to that would be, who is it who gave us life? Is it, in my case, because I was born Jewish, my first question is, why did Moses have to climb 
Mount Sinai to speak to God and to get the Ten Commandments. Does God have a hearing problem? <laughs> and if he did, and he created the world, he would have known where Mount Everest is. Right? He would have said to Sinai, yeah, but can you get to Everest? It's easier to hear. It's much easier to hear. So that was my first, when I was a very young child. Good questions. So he's been irreverent all his life as well. You can tell, can't you? I can. And, and when you do pass on and you meet God, what are you going to say to him, Albert? Oh, I'm going to say I'm sorry. Albert is deeply grateful to Rodney for offering him control over the grim death that motor neurone disease would otherwise bring. What surprises him is that Rodney doesn't want to hide what he's doing. Initially, I thought that he might manage it in secret so that we're all breaking the law, but, it, you know, we can keep it secret. But then I found out that it's the opposite. He doesn't want to keep it secret. Well, the law is a blunderbuss. What it says in the Crimes Act that it's a serious criminal offence to aid and abet suicide or to incite somebody to suicide. And for years and years and years that's been interpreted that if a doctor were to do what I do, that I am breaking the criminal law. What I've done is to help people to end their own lives. I've not ended anybody's life. I want people to go on with their life as long as they possibly can. But if they reach a brick wall, there is nothing you can do to relieve their suffering. And they are of sound mind and fully informed. They're requesting help to die. Then I believe I have a duty to do that. Rodney wants to provoke the law so that a new and more compassionate one can be written. One that allows people with unbearable and untreatable suffering to request assistance to die. Opponents to change say, oh, we're making decisions about whether you will live and die. Rubbish, you're making the decision. If you come to me and say, I have intense suffering and I want help to die, it's arrogant of me to say, well, no, you don't have enough suffering. Suffering. For Rodney, this is the key. It's not a particular illness. It's not how long they've got to live. It could be... For example, somebody with multiple sclerosis, a chronic paralytic disease which lasts for years and years and people can spend any number of years in the end stages uh, in terrible suffering. There can be people with chronic rheumatoid arthritis is another very good example, whose almost every joint in their body is riddled with arthritis and pain. They may not have a particularly obvious point in which they're going to die. But their suffering can be intense. Uh, a person, for example, who's had a profound stroke and uh, is paralysed and speechless, but can go on like that for years in intense suffering. Are these people to be excluded? I don't think that's fair. The critical point is suffering, intolerable suffering, which is unbelievable. 
Rodney wants to see a law written using safeguards similar to those that have successfully worked overseas. The first of these is that the person requesting help to die has to be mentally competent. You need to establish that they are rational, that they're capable of making decisions, that they have carefully considered that decision, that they do in fact have circumstances which align with the concept of intolerable and irreversible suffering, that all of these things are given due consideration. And if all of those criteria are met, then you have to check those against a standard, and that's another doctor who is convinced of the same phenomena. And if either doctor considers that this person is actually depressed and that's affecting their thinking, then they should engage with a psychiatrist. And they could say, well, you will need to have treatment of your depression before we can make a decision. Rodney is well aware that the most common concern raised about such laws is that vulnerable people, such as the elderly and the disabled, may feel coerced into seeking an end to their lives. But in his experience, people like this are easily detected. You know, as an experienced uh, medical practitioner, I'm talking to people all the time. I'm exploring all the facets of their complaints. Uh, It's the easiest thing in the world to determine after 10 or 15 minutes of conversation. What are the reasons that you are asking me for assistance? And to suss out if there's an ambivalence or that somebody else is behind there giving a little push. And besides which, think about this. Do you think that I could persuade you to end your life if you didn't think that was a good idea? People cling to life. For Rodney, though, the ultimate safeguard, one that has been dramatically effective overseas, is that the decision about whether or not to end your suffering is entirely up to you. This is medication in the form of a drink that you, and only you, can choose to take. I think the provision of oral medication is by far the most effective thing to do because the actual provision of the medication gives the person control. If you're giving lethal injections, the doctor has control. I think that's the wrong way around. If you give a person control, they may or may not use it. That's their decision, and they will not use it unless they are absolutely convinced that they cannot go on any further. The law that Rodney advocates is called Voluntary Assisted Dying. It says what it means. It's voluntary, it is assisted by a doctor supplying medication, and it is dying. These words have been carefully chosen because in this argument, words are bullets. You can't just put a nice word in front of an unpleasant one and change the meaning. So what about assisted suicide? aid and dying, death with dignity, call it what you will, it is at its core an attempt to sugarcoat death and particularly suicide. That's US litigation attorney and anti-euthanasia campaigner Catherine Foster. She knows that a word like suicide carries a historically dark meaning. She and others who oppose these laws try to harness that darkness wherever they can. It is a tactic that rankles. I It's so annoyed when the word suicide is used in relation to somebody who's got unbearable suffering, terminal illness, wants to end their life, not because they want to end their life, but because they want to end their suffering. Now, to me, this is a totally different circumstance to what we usually see as suicide. (laughs) 
listening to John Fame on 774 ABC Melbourne. You may have heard Steve from Point Lonsdale calling in last week. He called in on Talkback and told us a most remarkable tale. The tale continues. After A week after his call to Melbourne Radio, a dying Steve Guest was invited into the studio. He told listeners that he had been helped in a way that had fundamentally changed the last days of his life. But I can tell you now that that anxiety that I referred to that derives from this uncertainty and the fear has now gone. Offers have been made to me. It has included uh, offers of help with obtaining the drug that I believe I should be able to obtain under prescription from my general practitioner. It's now available to me basically at call. So that's one thing, that anxiety has gone. Steve died eight days later in the company of his two brothers using the medication Rodney supplied him. Rodney continues to demand a response from the law, admitting on national television in 2015 that he'd given medication to help Steve Guest die. Can I just put it to you like this? Are, are you actually trying to provoke the police to prosecute you yes, so you indeed. can actually have a test case? Yes, indeed. Because I would argue that I can produce and provide a person with medication which provides them with palliation, relieves the psychological and existential suffering which they have when they're facing a dreadful death then I believe that that is a palliative act. It is a rare man who risks his liberty on a point of principle. And if a court case were to happen? I think I will win. I think I will win, A, because I've got a sound argument that what I've done is to, my intention is to relieve suffering. Secondly, I'd be judged by my peers. I think they would support what I had done with Steve Guest, that I would not be found guilty. But even if they don't prosecute me, the fact that I'm not being prosecuted, having broken what everybody would see as the interpretation of the law, and I'm not prosecuted, what does it say about the law? The law's bloody ass. If you'd like to hear how things turned out for Albert and Sandra, head to the episode page at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. In the next episode, we hear the extraordinary story of Tasmanian woman Kathy Pryor, who was sent to jail for the mercy killings of her grievously ill parents. And we look at the human cost to a country where there is no law for assisted dying, but where people are being assisted to die anyway. On a very deep emotional level, to me, helping people come to a peaceful end is very rewarding to me as a physician. And sharing in their death, it's a very profound, deep experience. And uh, you never forget it. You never forget it. Twelve angels from the north. Twelve angels from the south. Twelve angels from the east. Twelve angels from the west. Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels shooting from your brow 
Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south Ooh, ooh Coming for to carry me